0: What's up my friends and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today talking about math. Got an episode from way back in December of 2020 and I'm talking to a math whiz, a mathlete, Emerson Matsuuchi, a guy that understands spreadsheets on a very high level and we get into spreadsheets and we talk about using math to design games, using it in playtesting, using it in balancing and making sure things are working, at least in the theoretical level that then you can take to a table and see if it works in real life. We talk about using mathematical models and figuring things out and a whole lot more. And so if you're a math person, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And if you're not, if you're like me, I think you're going to be able to take a lot of notes as well and just learn and just sit at the feet of a guy who really knows What he's talking about. In other news, this episode is sponsored by The Misplay. The Misplay is a podcast about creating a board game company. Inspired by the Board Game Design Lab and Stonemaier Games, The Misplay is taking you on their journey. Whether you're a seasoned designer or a casual player, you'll find something to enjoy as they design a board game from the ground up, share what they learn, and make misplays along the way. You can follow their story by listening wherever you get your podcast and join their community by visiting themisplay.com. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And their record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Emerson Matsuuchi. Math is not my favorite subject Uh, in the slightest. I am an English guy. I am a wordsmith. I love literature. I love books of of just beautiful stories. I'm not a math guy, but that's why I have invited the amazing, the wonderful, from NASCA Games, Emerson Matsuuchi on the show, because he is a math guy, and he's been doing this for a long time, He's developed some of the the best games on the market, and I'm just excited to have you on the show, Emerson. Welcome. Really glad you're, uh, you're joining me back.
1: Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: Yeah, uh, we were talking before we hit record that, you know, it's been like two and a half years or three years or something like that since you were on here last, and uh, you have been very busy in the meantime developing just some of these amazing games, these hits who just sold you know tens of thousands of copies. You've been able to work on some really cool uh, licensed IPs and, and all these different things, and uh, yeah, I'm just really, really pumped to, to get into your process, your system, your spreadsheets for how sure. math it works into the mathematical models behind games because you know it's it's something that like we were talking about before we we start recording like math probably undergirds a hundred percent maybe ninety nine point nine percent of all games on the market. It's just a matter of realizing it or not. But before we get into the topic, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing.
1: Okay, all right. My name is Emerson Matsucci. Uh, let's see. I have been designing games since twenty thirteen uh, at a more uh, serious level. Uh, I've been designing games ever since I was a kid, though. <laughs> so, but I never made anything uh, commercial until about 2013. Uh, prior to that, I was a, a software developer, a software architect, uh, software engineer, uh, well, yeah, an IT professional, and that's what I was. That that was my whole background. And I think part of that experience of being in IT and working with systems does, does lend itself quite well to uh, game design. There's quite a few parallels be- between the two. So that's basically my background.
0: Very cool, and you've developed some just really amazing games on in very different parts of the market. You know, you have Reef, and then you have Specter Ops. You have Century. You know, the Golem Edition and Spice Road Edition, and then you have Metal, Metal Gear Solid, and you have Volt. You have all these different kinds of games, and so one of the main things I'm really excited to hear about. Uh, in just a minute is how in the world you come up with different mathematical models for totally different games. You're talking about economics versus combat versus hidden information, like all these different things you got going on. But before <laughs> we get into that, let's get a good like frame for the conversation, like a good working definition. What is what exactly does it even mean when we're talking about math in board games?
1: Okay. So Uh, Whenever you have a system, and basically most games, uh, you know, we can see them as a system of working mechanisms, right? So you have one mechanism, so one mechanism would have certain knobs and dials that you can turn, whether it be workers you place on a board, whether it be dice that you are rolling, or a... calculated bluff that you're making to an opponent you know those are all kind of like different variables and those mechanisms really are the glue that holds those things together and allows the system uh, to function by having one, by changing one variable, you're altering other variables within uh, this the system. And I know that sounds incredibly, incredibly abstract. And at, at some point during uh, this podcast, I hope we can come up with some like concrete examples for each of these different things. What's a, what what is a variable? What is a mechanism? What you know? How do you define the system?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We, we will definitely get into the nitty gritty of those things, you know, because I feel like this is something that's more important maybe than a lot of designers realized. I know it's more important than I realized for a long time. You know, like I said in the intro, I'm a, I'm a uh, not a math guy. I'm an English guy. I'm a word guy. You know, so anytime math came up in my games, whether it was, you know, how much something was going to cost or, you know, the combat value for a a card, I would just be like, Oh, throw a two on it and let's see what happens. And then we'll play test it. And you know, maybe the two works, maybe it needs to be a five, maybe it needs to be a hundred. I don't know, but I would just kind of throw numbers at stuff and then just see what worked and what didn't. And there was a lot of trial and error, but I know there have got to be better ways. I know there are maybe some algorithms some spreadsheets some formulas that would probably help me in my designing and especially in my balancing of games. And so I had to realize that and I'm still a long way off. So I'm actually personally excited. To pick your brain about how this stuff works just from my own design sake. Uh, but before we get into the nitty-gritty, why is this important? Why should a designer be thinking about these things? Why why should math kind of be something that a designer really works hard to understand as far as their, their game designs are concerned?
1: Okay. Uh, well, part of it is that uh, it does help you really get an understanding of how the game functions, is if you could Break down as many of the different aspects and different elements of the gameplay into numerical values, uh, because many of the hobby games that we play, uh, they they can uh, they can have, uh, I should say, they they are really composed of a lot of different. Uh, sc- I call them scales, like scalar values, where they they range in value. So, for instance, uh, you know, I'll use like say Magic the Gathering as an example. So you have like things like mana cost, right? So that's one scalar variable. You have like the creature's toughness and power. So that's that's like another variable. Uh, but then there's also going to be elements that are much much more difficult to really uh, to to really create a model around. Are those special abilities and things like that? But you try to do the best that you can by trying to come up with some uh, baseline value, uh, and I'll give an example of what I call like a baseline value. Is Let's say in a worker placement game, uh, so let's say every player has, starts the game off with five workers. Right? So each worker gives you one action. So now you can like kind of break it, everything down into those actions as to your most atomic uh, uh, basic level in the game. So it's the, it's the smallest unit that you could break everything down. Uh, and then once I find that baseline, and I've done this um, with uh, when I when I play this other player, uh, other designers' games, that I will try to break down. Okay, what is the most atomic unit that I can break everything down into, as sort of like the basis for your your value formulas? And what I mean by value formulas is, and I'll go back to the uh, Magic the Gathering example, is that okay? So you have this particular creature that has this power, this toughness, and this this ability uh and uh, the power and toughness you might be able to come up with a good formula that says okay well if it has a three toughness three power then the mana cost should be around five or six you know you'd come up with some formula based on like its effectiveness against uh, defeating your opponent then you add those special abilities and you say okay well this special ability uh in, in most cases, the expected value of the special ability will give you the equivalent of, say, like seven seven additional power, which means that we need to ramp up the mana cost by X amount. So it's a, it's sort of that baseline value that you want to be able to break everything down into as the most granular uh, metric that you can use. And I'm sorry, I, I do this all the time. I always like throw out jargon and... Um, and a lot of very technical terms, and I do apologize for that. And I'll try to be conscious of it and try to like define everything that I'm spitting out here. So if there's any, so Gabe, if there's anything that I'm saying that doesn't make any sense to you, please feel free to interrupt me and say, "Hey, what does that mean?" I'm not sure what you're saying, uh, and so forth. So, oh yeah,
0: definitely. And I'm writing, I'm writing down all these words and, and phrases that I, I'm, I'm thinking that people might not know what you're talking about, even if ones that I do. If if it's something I don't think that you know. 100% of the listening audience is going to know I'm writing it down and we'll we'll definitely circle uh, back around to it. But going back into the the why, you mm-hmm. know, how has figuring out these different mathematical models and figuring out the math behind games, how has it really sped up your process or has it sped up your process? Has it helped you in balancing games? Like, give me kind of the, the more detailed look at how this has actually helped Emerson in mm-hmm. his designing and really figuring out the math and how it all works together.
1: Yeah, well, because of our current situation, a lot of times I have to uh, do a lot of designing independently. So I'm doing a lot of designing sort of in a vacuum, which is uh, which is sort of like the antithesis of what you want to do with your games. You generally want to get your games in front of people, get playtests, get feedback, and things like that. But what I've discovered is that um, many times I can foresee certain problems happening because I could see it in the model itself where I see, okay, well, I'm giving the players these powers, and I see one power you know has the equivalent of seven actions while this particular power only has the equivalent of five actions. And so I can what playtesting has shown me is that um, it's kind of rationalized, or it's really given me the uh the the, uh, the results that I'm looking for in terms of, okay, well, if I change this particular values, I could see what's, what, what happens in the game. So in the example of something that's worth five versus something that's worth seven, as the game goes, I could see in their final scores, okay, this, you know, the expected result was that this player who uses this power is only going to get to this score, while this player that used that power got to a score that was you know 20% higher than the other player. Uh, and so I've been using a lot of math to kind of predict what's going to happen in the game. Um, and the playtest will then kind of validate what my predictions are. And, and I've done this uh, a few, several times to the point where I, I feel fairly confident that I can do, like I can validate most of the design uh, and then bring it to a state where it is playable, it's fairly balanced. And then the real question that when I bring to uh, when I bring my game to a playtest group now is, is it an actual enjoyable experience? Um, and what I've discovered is that oftentimes I'll have a game that that works; it's balanced, and the mechanics are sound, but it may not be a fun game to play.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something to uh, to be aware of. We'll get into that in a minute and talking about math versus fun, and uh, you making sure that ratio is uh, what it needs to be to have a, a good game. But it also seems like if you really understand the math. For your game and how it all works together, that you can really speed up your playtest process because you might not have to play test quite as much. Because if you really figure out the math behind certain things, then you'll just know. I remember uh, I had Darwin Castle on the show a while back, and he designed Star Realms, and he mm-hmm. talked about at one point how he understood the math behind Star Realms so well that it was very easy to come up with new cards and know basically how much they needed to cost in the game's economy and what they needed to do and, and how much it would cost to do this and that and the other because he just understood the math behind it so well to the point where you know he didn't have to create a new card and then play test it a million times, he could bring right. out a new card and then just play test it to make sure it was fun, like you're saying, because he understood the math and the cost and how it all worked together. So it right. does exactly. seem to make sense the more you understand the math, the quicker your process can be. Have you found that to be true?
1: Yes, actually. It, uh, uh, quite a bit. So when I first started designing, you know, uh, I had to go through you know, uh, long periods of just trial and error because I wasn't familiar with how game mechanics work, how they interact, and how they can be kind of broken down. Into uh, a logical model, and so uh, as as I've kind of grown as a designer, and like we like I mentioned before the show, that I feel like I'm kind of entering my sophomore stages of being a designer. So now I feel like I'm getting a better grasp of how how the math and how the mechanisms uh, relate to each other and how we can kind of break them down so that we can understand the values of different things, the values of a worker's uh, spot, the value of playing this card into your tableau or the value of this creature that you put onto the battlefield and so forth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say real quick, if you're entering your sophomore phase, that puts the rest of us, or a lot of the rest of us in kindergarten. And so,
1: uh <laughs> Yeah, it goes from freshman to senior.
0: <laughs> oh, but anyway, so let's talk about when. Uh, that was a question that came in uh, from the Facebook community. Uh, as far as like, when do you really start thinking about this? Are you thinking about math from the very beginning? Like maybe even before you even start a design? Like do you have kind of the math in mind for how a certain system will work? Or, or is this something that kind of comes along in the middle of the end? When should a person, should a designer be thinking about the math?
1: Oh, okay. Well, uh, everyone has like a different entry point, like a jumping off point. In terms of creating, like starting a new idea, you know, it's that creative flow, uh, and that's something that's probably very, very individual to different designers. But at some point in that initial process, I think it is—it is a good idea to just, at least in the back of your mind, think about, okay, well, how is this going to how. Does the math work in this particular case now it may not be necessary you may want to just let the creative side of you just take over let the design you know uh, design itself for a while let it just let it lead and you know as a designer you follow to see where the design goes and then once you get to the point where you feel like okay there is some there's something here it has a hook it has a you know uh quality to it that you want to pursue it you want to uh iterate on it and you feel like it is a viable project and that's probably the time that you definitely need to then look at okay well how do we balance this uh how to how do we expand the design space for this uh and uh how how can we uh, validate most of the mechanisms that way. When we actually bring it to a playtest group, you know, we we already have like a checklist of the things that we need, we want to test, uh, rather than just testing just the basic mechanisms of whether they work or not, whether they feel balanced or not. You can validate a lot of that, and then you can get you can, you'll be able to get more out of your playtest uh, sessions that way.
0: Yeah. And that makes a whole lot of sense. All right. So earlier you mentioned the word or the phrase baselines. How do you come up with baseline? First of all, what is a baseline when we're talking about game design and math? And then how do you figure out what those baselines are? Do you have maybe some formulas, some spreadsheets where you kind of plug the numbers in? How do you do it personally?
1: Okay. Well, I, I go through a process of just thinking, okay, what's the the most granular uh, unit that I could break down a game into? Uh, So I used the worker placement as sort of an example is that you have one worker is one action. So, uh, one action gets you, say, two resources, right? So, it's what it's what you can compare all the different opponents. Of. You can compare all the opponents to one common uh, variable among them. So, and it could be it, it could really be anything. Uh, it could be uh, the currency of the game. That could be your baseline. Okay.
0: What about like actions? Could it be like the number of actions you get on a turn, and like how yeah. many things you can do with an action, something like that?
1: Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Then you can then you could see, OK, well, this special ability will reduce the cost of something. You know, let's say, for instance, you know, this ability reduces the cost of buildings by one resource. Right? So and then uh, let's say, for instance, uh, you have one worker can get you, say, two resources on average, right? So at the beginning of the game, each of your uh, workers can get you two, two of any kind of resource or whatever, and you have, but you have just received a special ability that gives you uh, the ability to uh, build a building uh, for one less resource, just as an example. So you know that that's giving you a half an action uh, benefit. And if the game is, say, a set number of rounds, so let's say if it's a 12-round game, then it's giving you this essentially six actions if that player can if, if building a building each round is something that they they do now let's say typically you only build seven buildings within the course of the game right then it's only say then its values three and a half actions so you can see how you can start to like really do some valuations once you pick what your baseline is going to be
0: yeah, absolutely. And this will definitely help you when you're trying to figure out the balance of a game, because you have a card that all of a sudden throws you know one player's average way off from the others. And all of a sudden they're averaging two more resources a turn or something you know crazy like that that kind of messes up the economy of the game or the number of actions a player can take. You know, then you have to assess, OK, do I want this to happen uh, or is this just part of the fun? You know, that players can exploit the game in a certain way and create these crazy combos and do this, but at least be intentional about it. Right.
1: Right, right, and I, I think that that's part of the fun of the game is that uh, you know the example that I gave. It's so let's say you have uh, an ability that allows you to pay one less resource for a for, for building a building in this is, you know imaginary euro game. So it's but if let's say you have uh, other abilities that allow you to build more than one building a turn, or you could really leverage that so you get more value out of it. So then the value of that ability is really a very, it's a, it's a scale, right? So let's say a person goes for like a different strategy and only builds three buildings for the, for the game. They're not going to get as much value out of it. So those, so those abilities uh, have a range of values. It's not a set value. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, games that have very, very set values, uh, you can, you can see the the math very clearly that everything seems to have a set value. Like if you, if you do this, you this ability gives you this two resources, or this, this ability gives you one resource for uh, each round for the next three rounds, right? So that's a very, very set value. Whereas I think the more interesting uh, abilities are the ones that are variable, like you don't know how much value you're going to get out of them because it's based on what actions that you're going to take in the game.
0: Right. Cause it seems like if you get too far down into the math of the game and you make it maybe too rigid that the game could maybe be solvable where a player goes into a game knowing, okay, I'm going to take this action on turn one, this action on turn two, and they just almost have a script of what they're going to do. And then the, the game almost kind of plays itself. It seems like if the math maybe gets a little too rigid, is, is that true? And is that something you really need to think about when you're maybe dealing with the math?
1: Yes, actually it's something I'm very cognizant about is that it, the system needs to have sources of uncertainty and i think that's where some of the tension and excitement comes from the game is the unknown so you so let's say in a game you don't know how many buildings are going to be out and available to you right so that so that makes it an interesting decision okay well i i would like this special ability i have to pay for the special ability i want the special ability to give me a cost reduction for building buildings but i don't know if uh how many buildings i'll be able to build because john over here seems to be working on a building strategy too so you have player driven uncertainty like that like what are the other players going to do and you'll also have uncertainty in terms of oh how many buildings are going to be out uh coming from this imaginary deck of of cards that you can buy maybe there's characters that you could buy or there are uh, uh uh, viking ships that you can buy so it's not always just going to be buildings right so now it becomes a, it, it's it's becomes an interesting decision okay well i don't know how much value i'm going to get out of it but i but i'm going to try this particular strategy and see how it goes but if you make everything too transparent then and you could see exactly how many buildings you're going to have access to that your opponents won't be able to uh, alter that then it, then you can essentially math it out like you said
0: yeah, and I've seen some games, uh, you know, apply some very interesting, very fun, very cool uh, methods to avoid th- this kind of situation where they do create the uncertainty. I know in, in Gloomhaven, you know, you got the uh, the enemy decks that you have to reshuffle every so often. Like there's cards in there that you have to reshuffle everything back in there together. And so you can't just count cards and go, you know, okay, I know there's a one out of three chance of this, that, or the other. Like, no, there's going to be something that reshuffles those cards. And so you, you you can kind of get an idea. You can count cards to a certain degree, but not all the way. So you can be certain, but then there's a lot of uncertainty uh, as well. I know in uh, Settlers of Catan, they, you know, normally you roll the die, and then the die determines the resources that come out during the game. But, you know, a lot of people were bothered by how random that was. Because what if, you know, you never rolled an 11 and the whole game, you never got a resource from that one eleven place that you had your your little uh, colony built or whatever. And right. so they introduced a, a deck of cards where you would draw cards and, and you were guaranteed to get like two or three of a certain number uh, right. as, as you went throughout the game before you reshuffled. So you could, really could count the cards and you could know exactly, you know, what the odds were of you know, resources coming out on, on different spots. And so I think, think those are some cool ways. What are some other ways that maybe you've seen or that you've uh, applied in your own games to introduce some uncertainty so you can't just math out the game?
1: Yeah, so you have your typical, like, say, rolling dice, so dice as a resource. Uh, so games such as, like, Sagrada use this to, to great effect where you, the dice pool is is random. So the colors as well as the number of pips on those dice is completely random. But the randomness is given to you and then you have to then make your decisions based on that. And your placement of those dice kind of dictate your strategy as to um, what dice you're going to be selecting. And then you also have the player uncertainty too. Like, is Bob going to take that red number three that I really need? Uh, and, And so forth. Should I plan around him taking that? And so I think the... Um, and introducing that uncertainty either through, say, deck of cards, through uh, dice rolls uh, are your typical ways of in- introducing that level of uncertainty.
0: Yeah. And so is it right or correct to say that it's a little easier to add uncertainty with dice than it is a deck of cards just from the natural state of those components?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say that it's easier. They're, they are different. Um, so the main difference, you know, I'll, I'll go into... Um, what, what I consider important aspects or the important differences between dice and uh, deck of cards is that um, the, the deck of cards allows you a variable number. Imagine like a deck of cards, if you treat it like a dice, it's a dice with, an, you define how many faces it has. Right? But the, what, one important thing is that if a card is out of the deck, it cannot, it, that dice cannot roll to that side so and i wanted to um kind of frame it like that to illustrate how dice are different so when you roll a dice you know the same face can come up many 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 times right so dice uh have a much have a i'm not sure what a good term is but they are indefinitely random no that's that's not an accurate term but i hope i'm conveying the correct sentiment that you know when you roll the dice the the previous results of the dice don't affect its future results. That's what I'm, what I'm trying to uh, emphasize. Mm. Whereas with yeah. the deck of cards, as you're drawing the cards, you're altering the probability of what you'll draw next based on what's already been drawn. So it depends. Those they're basically two different tools that a designer can use, and it depends on what uh, what they're trying to achieve in terms of what kind of uh, uncertainty they want to introduce into their game.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. All right. So earlier you mentioned the, the phrase mathematical models. Mm-hmm. What exactly is that in more layman's terms? And then how does that apply in figuring out, you know, a game design balance? What, what, are, like, what do you use mathematical models for? And what are some like interesting things that, that maybe most designers don't even realize they, they could be doing with these models?
1: Okay. Uh, I I call it a mathematical model, but it may be a misnomer. Uh, it's what I what's what I refer to when when I start to design a game. I break it down into, okay, what are the actions that the players can do? How can the players affect the game as a system? So if you think of, and this is probably going back to sort of my uh, programming background, is I'm looking at it as a system, and I'm looking at how the players are interfacing with that system. What knobs can they turn? What, What can they do to influence the game? So like an example would be, okay, well, they can take a card as one of their actions. And when they do take that card, then it alters what's, what is the, um, the selection that the uh, their opponents have. Right? So yeah, that's, that's one way to see them influencing the system. Uh, the other way is that they gain resources from, say, like a limited pool. Right? So that then removes certain uh, resources from the system that other players now, no longer have access to. Uh, so I, I try to look at everything as a system. So it may be a better uh, name to call it just a, a game system rather than a, a math model because I'm looking at it more as a, a system as I did when I looked at, say, software. But underpinning all that is, is sort of like a math where I say, okay, well, this, is, uh, this particular action has this much of a value or each of these resources have a, ver- a specific mathematical value to them. Uh, with Century Spice Road, uh, it is—it's it, a very, very transparent in terms of its values because we show that there's a graduated scale of values uh, for the different resources, and those resources will give you a set number of victory points when you uh, redeem them for a victory point card. So the the values are very, very transparent. Um, in in other games the the values can be a little bit more opaque in terms of like you don't know exactly how many victory points you're going to get from something because it could be based on other things so for instance something that will give you victory points for each red building that you have and I, I know I keep going back to buildings but I I tend to I tend to like Euro games with buildings uh, but that's also one where you you Uh, take a look at well how many red buildings are there so what is the likelihood of a player that's going for the strategy uh how many red buildings could they uh achieve so what is the what is the, the likelihood of them getting say five buildings versus some something like eight and so forth like so you try to come up uh with sort of like a best your best estimates for these particular values and then based on that then you could say okay well if this is my expected value for for how many red buildings a player can get then i know okay well i can value it at say five victory points per red building um, based on the values of these other cards that i have so and this is where that sort of the baseline comes in so I say, okay, well, every victory point card should give close to the value of, say, fifteen victory points. I'm just throwing a random number out there, uh, and I pick that as a sort of my baseline, and I want all the the cards to have uh, their 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 median value hit around that that mark. So when I when I create this system, I'm always creating it well because I'm no longer using. Uh, Uh, programming language now i'm just using numbers in my in my system when i'm trying to define the gameplay model for the game that i'm designing and that's why I've, i've been calling it a mathematical model but i think it's probably better to call it a system
0: okay cool and so tell me how a system like give me the the difference between like a system and a mechanism are those kinds of the same thing or how are you looking at those two different things
1: Oh, okay. I, I think of a system as a, uh, as a collection of mechanisms that are uh, coupled together in some way.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's talk about your spreadsheets. Tell me about like what you use for your games to figure out the math. Tell me about any formulas or algorithms or anything. Tell me about what, what you personally have going on in your design process where you just got all these cells and, and blanks and numbers and all that stuff going on. Tell me about
1: that. Okay. So right now I'm working on a city building game, and I have the spreadsheet in front of me. And I should probably send you a screenshot of this, but it, it looks like a mess of numbers and, uh, and line items and things like that. Uh, but what, what I use spreadsheets mostly for is to just kind of like aggregate values. So there's a lot of aggregation of values. Uh, and, and I do most of it is just really, really simple math. So I'm summing up, you know, columns to see, okay, well, I have so many, say, residential buildings. I have so many commercial buildings. Uh, But let's say if I have, say, 20 commercial buildings and I have, say, 40 residential buildings, if I create a victory point card that gives one, one victory point for every commercial building and another card that gives one point for every residential building, those quite aren't in line unless there's some other cost involved with acquiring those cards. So that's where the spreadsheets really help me is that, okay, well, I see that I'm looking on the column over here and I see, well, I have 53 population buildings and I have 54 commercial buildings, 49 industrial buildings and and so forth. So now I can kind of understand, okay, well, what is is the probability of these buildings coming out to be uh, acquired by the players? And so if I have more of one type of a building, I have to make some adjustments here and there. And this is where I use them the spreadsheets quite quite a bit and this is uh, a lot of the work that I'm doing now is work that I'm doing before I actually bring it to the playtesters so there's a lot there's balancing that I can do beforehand now that being said I'm not sure if that is the best way this is something that I've been experimenting recently uh, say since around uh, February or March I'm trying to see well how much of the, um, the design can I do uh, working as as if i'm working with a piece of software uh, how much can i do just um developing it in, in sort of a vacuum uh and see how does it affect the the end product how does what kind of a game comes out of this process so it's not something that i'm going to like recommend to your audience uh, that that are looking to design games to go with this step and just start uh making games in a spreadsheet that that may not be the the right thing to do but it is something i'm experimenting with i am seeing that there is some value to it it's it's hard for me to uh really define exactly where those value points are why why does it make sense to do this why is would you recommend it and what elements of this whole process would would i say you know that you should avoid and so forth so i haven't gone down this path enough i haven't tried it Uh, this enough to be able to give those kind of uh, recommendations yet. So, but it's just something I want to mention that I'm doing.
0: Right. But I assume it's, it's easier or better to have everything in front of you. You can look and you can see the different numbers. You can see everything at a glance. You can say, okay, the red buildings, here's the numbers, here's the blue buildings, here's the numbers, here's the victory points. You can kind of see the whole, whole thing at once. And maybe it's a little easier to wrap your, your arms around the project, as a whole. And I feel like that's, that's super valuable just to have the whole thing right there in front of you. And then you can tweak things maybe a little bit easier. And you know, if you can see all the numbers at the same time, it's like, okay, let me change red a little bit. Let me drop down yellow a little bit. Okay. Let's see what that does. All right. All right. Now I'm ready for my next play test and you don't have to ponder on it. You can actually see it all right there uh, yeah, you know, at your yeah. fingertips.
1: Yeah, it does. It, it does. Um, it is very helpful to say, let's say if you have something that, had, that costs different kinds of resources, you kind of want to see, well, okay, well, what is the, just the average cost of, say, this blue resource? Or how much, uh, let's say if you have like different building materials as well as money as a, as a resource to, to build something, well, what percentage of or what's the average cost uh, in money for all of the buildings? And it helps to, to sort of see these aggregate information. Uh, that being said, though, it, it may lead designers down a wrong path or, you know, uh, because I've caught myself doing this. I've made like uh, wrong assumptions. So I've actually created a design that that I thought was mathematically sound. But there was a problem with my formula to begin with or my whole understanding of the relationship between these numbers. And in the first play test, I saw, oh, there's something I didn't account for. Okay,
0: gotcha. And so, tell me a little bit more about your spreadsheets. Like, how are they broken down? Tell me the the categories or like the columns. The you know how everything is set up. Give me just kind of the, the vi- like paint me a picture of what your spreadsheets look like on the screen.
1: <laughs> okay, I do have a, a couple of them now. There's uh, in terms of the structure, there is very little that's that's common between them, just because the designs themselves are also so quite different. I'm, I have one with a, a city building game in which I'm breaking down uh, all the different types of buildings. Uh, I'm breaking down their costs, their, um, their expected values, uh, in terms of like, what they provide uh, for the players in terms of, say, future resources or uh, discounts or abilities. And I have to break down those abilities and say, okay, well, what is the resource uh, equivalent of those abilities? Because I'm using cost as sort of my baseline for that, and I have right now I have three different tiers of buildings, so the buildings get more expensive but give you greater benefit. So they're all they're in a tiered system, and I have different tabs that uh, that break it down by. So I have one that breaks it down by building type. I have another one uh, that's one breaks it down by the cost because I want to see. Um, so things that sort of cost a certain uh, resource, how many of those buildings are there? So I break it down by resource, uh, because I was trying to make it thematic as well. And sometimes things that are thematic aren't quite always balanced. So uh, I had to find, I have to sort of had to find the, uh, excuse upon the balance point between those two. Uh and then finally, I have a big sheet which uh, itemizes uh, everything so that I know what I need to put into to create the prototype. That's one. And then I'll, I'll just, just as a, another one. I started using Google Docs, so I'm actually uh, opening up Google Docs now. Or Google Sheets, I should say. So I have another one, that, which is a civilization building game. And I've been uh, I've been actually migrating my spreadsheets from Excel to Google Sheets just so I can access on different uh, devices. And this one, uh, the tabs I have on the bottom. So for this one, I have uh, in the civilization game, you can encounter other civilizations. So I call them neutral civilizations and they have a whole different set of properties. So I have one tab specifically for that. I have another tab for uh, the technology tree for it uh i have another tab which is the um the geography tiles like what is the distribution of different types of terrain uh and what resources are accessible from those terrains. so i have another sheet for that so i have everything in sheets but they're they're very very different from project to project so i organize it based on what i think makes the most sense for that particular design
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, earlier you talked a, a little bit about variables and how you know variables can come into play and mess with the math a little bit here and there. So, tell me about what some of those variables could be, and then how do you account for them in the math, like in the spreadsheet, in the you know what's going on with the game?
1: Okay, so, uh, like for instance, resources is right, like one variable, like how much something costs. So each ver- each resource has to have some kind of intrinsic value to them. That uh, that players can use to gain some kind of an advantage in the in the system in the game. And so uh, so that is the in a lot of your games that's probably um, that's probably the most used uh, metric or that variable that I use is how much does something cost in terms of resources and you can tie that back to okay well, what is the player's ability to get those resources? And then you can break that down either by action like you can uh, break everything down in terms of uh, action costs, so or the value of an action. So let's say, for instance, this special ability is worth five actions. Uh, you can break it down that way, or you could say, well, this is this building gives the equivalent of, say, five resources, and each action gets you two resources. Uh, and so, for, so those are the variables I was uh, mentioning: is you have you have actions, you have uh, resources, you have costs. Uh, and also any limitations too. For instance, if you can only hold five buildings, right? So that's that's another variable that you have to consider. Okay, well, a player that gets a building that allows them to expand their limit, right, now has uh, a different uh, upper limit for their variable of how many buildings that they can have. So I try to I try to just treat each one of these things as a variable.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. All right, let's um let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about Software like that that you use. Do you have any any tips on like figuring out the math, the probabilities? You know, do you have tables? Do you have any? uh, Do you have a calculator? Like, do you have anything that you use beyond you know spreadsheets that kind of help you figuring out the math behind you know a deck of cards or rolling other dice or maybe you're rolling you know if if I roll ten d six, what are my odds or things like that? Any recommendations
1: for? uh, Oh, I don't have anything in terms of the software, but there there's something that I did uh, several months back towards the beginning of the year. Is that I actually went back and I tried to uh, relearn math because I did realize that like my formula that I was using for say permutations of say dice values or combinations of cards, like how many different hands of cards uh, can you get. So I realized that you know I think that my my understanding of it's a little bit off, uh, or my math was a little bit a little bit off. So I actually went back and I actually um, learned the math for permutations and combina- combinations again. So um, so I just went on the internet, and I found some sites where I could kind of relearn this. And in the process, I was also uh, relearning like uh, integral math because I, I was terrible at calculus. So as much as uh, you say I'm a math guy, uh, my, here's my confessions that I was not really uh, super great at math. Uh, I was good at math before calculus. I think calculus ended up being my Achilles heel. So I actually went back and I struggled with like uh, integral calculus in high school. Uh, so I actually went back and I tried to relearn it as well. and I, I saw what my particular issue was is that it was hard for me to visualize a lot of the uh, a lot of the concepts in, in calculus. so, uh, so but going back trying to relearn it, I found that I guess you know, as you get older, you start to uh, uh, be a little bit more conducive to like different concepts, different ideas than when you were in high school. So I had a little bit better uh, op- better understanding of calculus now. I think, uh, although I'm still not I'm still not a math expert, but I know enough to uh, come up with close to the right answers sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's really cool that you just literally went back and figured it out and learned it. Now, how did that affect your game designing? How did that impact the actual, you know, working on games and, and like tell me how calculus you know, came into your design
1: process? Actually, I have I'm This is funny. I'm actually trying to find an application for calculus in a game, but I haven't found it yet. But what I did find is that going back just learning about just the uh, more uh, algebra related um math uh like for instance the common like i said the combinations permutations those i use all the time when it when it comes to game design so i think that is really really important to just nail down how what the difference between them is and how to calculate them so for instance your example of okay well if i roll 10 dice what is the odds of getting all ones on all 10 dice right so I, that that's a really simple uh Example, but let's say, okay, well, what is the probability of getting at least three dice that are odd? So then it starts becoming a little bit more tricky, and I, I think that being able to do to um, write the formulas to be able to calculate that probability is important because in games you do have the situations where, okay, well, three sides have uh, have axes, right? Two sides have shields, and one side is blank. So what are the odds that a player is going to roll five dice and get three axes? on his results and you know those things really do come up a lot in games. so so learning just going back if if anything i think that's really really important for game designers just just uh just nail down uh permutation combinations all the all the math related to probability so i think that's probably by far and away the most important or at least that's what i found is that i'm using that math more than anything else and I think the, the second most is that if you do a lot of, like let's say, war games, uh, so the, the things that have like uh, movement or you're working, moving on a grid and things like that, uh, I've, I've done, I've used a little bit of like the geometry that I was uh, kind of helping my son. He's, you know, he's doing, he's in uh, seventh grade now, so I'm helping him with geometry and I'm finding, oh, okay, I'm using a lot of that geometry knowledge as well. So, but other than that, like so far, I haven't found an actual application of calculus math in, in game design yet.
0: Well, I think that would get into the uh, what we'll talk about in a minute with the whole math to fun ratio. If you can figure out how to make calculus fun, I think you'll be a billionaire. But uh, but the other stuff you're talking about makes a whole lot of sense. Now, would it would it ever make sense? to give players like a reference card with the probabilities, like the tables of probabilities if you are rolling a bunch of dice and would it ever be conducive to give that, that kind of thing to them? Or should you always kind of keep the math hidden to them in certain ways?
1: Oh, I mean, I think there's a case for both sides. So certain, certain games you do want the, the players to know the probabilities because it's part of the fun is to know your, your odds. And some, you know, the thing the push your luck game, sometimes it's good to know your odds. And then, you know, knowing that you only have a one in three chance, do you push your luck, right? What do you have to, you know, you're weighing what you're, what you're losing based on what you're gaining. So I think in some games, it makes sense to, to show it. Uh, in other games, I think it's, you know, there's an argument to be made that you want to hide as much of the math as you can. Especially if in the case of a game that's very, very thematic. Uh, you want them to get immersed into the, the story, the narrative, uh, the world building. Not necessarily all the statistics of rolling the dice for your attribute checks and things like that.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Okay, so before we started recording, we were talking about the kinds of people who are who seem to be drawn towards this kind of thing. And it's programmers, it's you know people in academia that are kind of more math oriented and maybe they're professors and things like that. But it's also psychologists, like there's a lot of people in, in the realm of psychology that are game designers that also just get lost in the math of things. So why do you think that is like, how do, how do all these things kind of come together to be interconnected?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really good question. I think games are re- a really, really interesting medium in that it is a, uh, a blend of not just, not just math, but there's logic. Uh, there's, and there's a good dose of psychology in there. Uh, so there are two designers that, are, that I respect a lot, and I know that they are, um, I believe that they're both psychology professors, uh, Sen Foon Lim and uh, Dr. Dr. Stephen and uh and i think that knowing how uh the mind works and how uh people perceive games and what is their their psychological uh, payout that they're getting from from this i think that's really important and that's sort of like the the piece that i would like to understand more about too is that what is it that kind of drives people so the other part of the model that i'm also trying to educate myself on is the incentive bomb. like what is incentivizing players and that's sort of like this the psychology aspect of it it's like okay well why do players want to do this why do players want to play the game in the first place what is engaging about it right so there, are like for instance set collection is a very very um, very popular mechanic and i think that there is some psychological rationale behind that we like to there's sort of like an inner collector within us all that likes to see like a set of something we like to complete a collection and so forth so that, that there's a strong influence of those type of uh, psychological satisfactions that really drive uh, the enjoyment of the game and that's something that you can't you won't be able to see in a spreadsheet
0: Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's interesting, like once you start diving into human psychology, you know, one thing we've learned about the brain is that it's an amazing machine for finishing patterns. And the higher IQ, the the more intricate patterns you can figure out and complete and, and keep going. Uh, and whether you're talking about math, and, and you know, if you see something on, on on a page and it says two plus two, like psychological you want to finish that you want to write down four and you want to finish the pattern you want to finish out that equation or if you hear someone go dun, 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 somebody has to go dun, dun. and I, I do that in my classroom all the time when we're talking about psychology and different things as far as you know when you're writing and, and getting into the psychology of, of uh, the characters and things like that is like create patterns for the reader to finish and, and do these different things and you think about that in terms of, of your characters but also in terms of game design what does it look like to use math or to use all sorts of different things to create patterns that then players want to finish because that creates a natural incentive to get them to go do it. You don't have to just say, you know, I promise you candy. If you go do this, like it just creates a normal natural thing for the brain to, to want to uh, move towards. And so, you know, how can you use math? How can you use patterns in your game design? It's just a really interesting much deeper than, you know, picking some cards, picking some numbers, throwing it out there and seeing what what, what works. Uh, it's, it's a lot more interesting, kind of path to dive into once you really get into the the back end of game design the psychology yeah. of game design
1: it's really interesting that you brought up music too um, I had a pediatrician who uh, this, he was a very very good pediatrician uh, that that had told me you know you should play classical music to your children and his rationale was that that the that music is actually mathematical. So if you really break down music, you realize that it is uh, there's a lot of math behind the the music and it helps to develop the brain uh, to be able to, I guess, compute uh, values, but using sound. So it helps to develop that part of the brain and i thought that was incredibly fascinating and you know it, it's absolutely true that there's there's a whole underpinning of math underneath uh, music like all the sounds all the frequencies are based on math right the sep- the the steps of the frequency and which ones are harmonic which ones are ca- 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 I, f- I forgot the term uh, but uh, the, the the notes that don't sound right together is, you know there's there's all this math behind it And then when i did when i thought about it even more i said okay well uh, music is considered sort of one of the arts what about other things and when i look at art i do see that you know there's there's quite a bit of math if you i mean it it might be a bit of a stretch but you know a lot of paintings and drawings and renderings are how how you know the human eye perceives light and how colors and um, light and shadow blend together. And that's what, that's what we see. That's how our eyes interpret it. But they're all just signals. And this is the way, like, say, a computer can generate an image. It's, it's, all, it's all numbers. Uh, there was a math comedian that did this, in, uh, this really, really interesting um, presentation where he showed that an image is really just, just uh, uh, three bars of red, blue, and green. And you can he actually created an image using a google spreadsheet But he just made the cells so tiny with different values of red blue and green That he but he made a complete picture because he he zoomed out his spreadsheet to the point where you then saw the picture It was absolutely fascinating
0: Yeah, well first of all the phrase math comedian doesn't come up very often. And so uh, that's super interesting just to even have that come up is that somebody could use math and then in comedy. And again, we're going to get to math to fun ratio in just a minute. But going back to the whole music thing, you know, what really separates music from noise is rhythm, it's timing, it's patterns. And like you were saying, and, and so I think the same thing can be applied to game design. You know, if your game feels too chaotic, well, the math is probably a little bit messed up. There's probably a little bit too much randomness. There's a little bit too much going on that doesn't fit into rhythm or fit into patterns or fit into a good timing for things and something just to be aware of. Now, maybe you want a super chaotic game that feels kind of noisy and that's totally fine if that's what you're going after. But uh, if you don't want that, then you need to really think through the math and the patterns and the rhythms of different things and when they happen and how long a round takes and how many steps are in the round and the math behind the different resource collection, all that different, those different things. Just, uh, just be aware of those things. If you're really you know, trying to make a great game.
1: That's another really, really great point, is that uh, there are certain games, when you play them, you feel like, oh, well, this is a very elegant design. And, you know, um, going back to uh, software, I know that this is uh, something that you don't usually think of when it comes to, like, say, writing code. But I've had coworkers workers we look at each other's code and says, wow, that's really elegant code. Now, we couldn't quite pinpoint why we call things elegant. Right? Why are we using uh, sort of a, a term that you would, you would use to describe, uh, say, like a performing arts, you know, something, or say, uh, a, a dress or something, something visual, but we're using it for something that's very, very pragmatic and formulaic, right? Like, like a programming code. Uh, but, but it's sort of that the sense that you get, like everything. That, when you listen to music, you you listen and it and it sounds right. And I think in the same way, we see, we can see uh, a game when you when you play it, you see that everything fits in. Uh, there's nothing that that sticks out, and we feel we get that sense that some there's an elegant there's an elegance to the design, and we can't quite quite pinpoint it. And there's some parallels between what we did in, in software as and game design is that you know we are trying to achieve that elegance by uh, coming up with a, a system that is that is it it works with the fewest number of parts where nothing is extraneous. And I think musical pieces are the, the same way too. Is that you're you're trying to convey the the melodies and the symphonies with the, the fewest um, external noises? Like you don't want anything noisy to be on top of that. I'm not a musician, so I'm not sure if, if these analogies make any sense or if, if they're even valid. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't uh, math community. it was stand up math. That's stand
0: that is, up math. Yes, okay. I don't not, know if that's any better, but uh.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I, I really enjoy his, uh, his um, videos.
0: Yeah, I have to check it out. All right, so let's move uh, on to a little bit different topic. Let's talk about balance, especially when it comes, you know, into like if you have asymmetrical factions, or you got a lot of different uh, variable abilities that players have access to. How do you use math? To balance things, especially when they're kind of naturally not to say out of balance, but they're naturally different because of the way the game you know works, because you have you do have different uh, teams or different factions, different abilities, different things going on. How in the world do you use math to make it all work together so that everybody has a fair shot?
1: Yeah, and this is a case where coming up with that baseline is uh, is very very important. Is that okay? Well, in order to balance everything, you, it needs to have something common to be able to balance from right. So having a baseline, uh, so you can have all these different factions with different abilities and different ways that they interface with the system, but let's say if the game is based on uh, victory points. In fact, you can can abstract any kind of victory condition into victory points and vice versa, but uh, let's say that it's based on, say, victory points. So, in order for each faction to be balanced, is that they, they have different ways of getting to these victory points, but their rate at which that they gain the victory points, uh, or their uh, their ability to get the number of victory points in order to win, should be roughly the same as all of the other factions. But you can vary how they achieve that same goal. So it so either you start with the baseline, and you know you you know what the the uh, the smallest unit in your system is going to be and you base all of the actions on that so you can you know how roughly what the value of all these different actions are for a particular faction or you take it from the other side and you say well okay well the here are the victory conditions and we want them to be able to all achieve it within roughly the same let's say the same number of rounds right so that it's going to be a tight race, and it's going to be a balanced race between all these different factions, because most of the, uh, almost all the factions can get to a win condition, say by the tenth round, right? Or the expected value of them being able to reach a victory condition is around ten rounds.
0: Gotcha. Another thing I've seen, uh, I know Eldritch Horror does this, where each character has the same number of total ability points but then they're broken down into the different abilities in totally different ways right and so the the number you have five abilities but then you have 13 points so every character has 13 points but then you know uh, some characters have a 4 here and some characters have a 3 and some characters have a 1 and some characters have a 0 and so it makes the the characters totally different as mm-hmm. far as the numbers in each individual uh, ability but right. total, they're all the same. They all have access to 13 at the beginning. And so I think right. that's another thing you can do with the math and just say, okay, here's the common number. Here's the commonality, right. like you were saying earlier. Here's 13. But then we're going to break it down totally different. And then that kind of creates in, in, a, a natural balance to, to the game.
1: Yeah, but I would also say that uh, they could have gone a little bit farther and give some, uh, some of the characters uh, less than 13 attribute points. Let's say they're... You know, their strength and agility and their will is added, too. But they have a really, really cool special ability, right? So I think that, you know, uh, if, you're, if you're making all the characters have the same number of attribute points, that means that you also have to make their special abilities roughly the same across all the characters, too. So yeah,
0: that's a as, really good point.
1: As a designer, I would use this as an opportunity to vary the number of attribute points on the characters, to then uh, have more flexibility and more design space. And this is what I talked about before earlier in the, in the episode where I said something about the design space. This allows you to expand the design space so you can actually do more creative things with the abilities, knowing that you have other ways to rebalance those characters.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I've got a game I'm working on right now that has a lot of robots mm-hmm. in it. And, and that's the same kind of thing I'm doing. So you have a normal pool of X number of ability points. But then, you know, some of these robots have really powerful abilities. And so they'll have really low health. And then some of them might not have as good of abilities, but they will have really high defense. And so trying to find ways to balance things out that aren't just, you know, specifically ability point number total kind of thing, but also finding other ways to uh, to make it all work together. Because I guess, I guess at the end of the day. if the math is completely totally balanced that's fine but is the game fun and does it feel balanced because you know you could have perfectly balanced math but players play it and go this game's totally unbalanced because they don't even they don't see the numbers behind everything and as a designer it's got to be super frustrating You're like no everything is two plus two equals four everything is the same uh but it's how it feels so let's talk about that tell me about the fun to math ratio and and what have you found that that works have you found that you know you don't have to have perfectly balanced numbers that maybe perfectly balanced numbers actually leads to less fun. Tell me about that.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, as as designers, I don't think we should go after perfect balance. Uh, But what we should strive for, and and this is sort of like my own personal definition, is that a game doesn't need to be mathematically balanced. The game just... uh, just needs to feel fair for all players and i think that's way more important so this is one of those cases where the perception is more important than the reality so as an example is uh with Specter ops uh, the, it's not it's not actually a 50 50 between the uh there's two asymmetric sides where you have one person who's hidden and then you have a team who's trying to hunt them uh and normally you think that okay well as a designer you should make the the uh balance of the game 50 50 for both for either side to to win but i've actually skewed it toward one side because one side is much more desired uh role than the others right so by doing so like i i actually shifted the balance a little bit because then it feels more psychologically fair if that makes
0: sense. yeah that makes makes a lot of sense all right anything else from any of your games that you've worked on that kind of stands out as something maybe through the design process, the playtesting process, that the math kind of really came out and you're like, oh, okay, here's how I can tweak some things. Here, I, here, Here's a place where I can change some numbers. You know, anything like that in your own personal design?
1: Uh, something that I'd want to go back to, you mean?
0: Just Yeah, just in general. Anything from uh, one of your games that you're like, oh, here's a cool place where math was really interesting for how the game was created?
1: Okay. I, I think the most... Um... Uh, obvious example of where I used the math was with Century Spice Road because that one, the it's it's very, very transparent in terms of the, the values. Uh, the interesting part of the game is the is the uncertainty element, right? So what cards that you get during the course of the game is uh, it's going to change from game to game. And what hand of cards you're going to get is going to change from game to game. Therefore, you know, what combinations you have access to is, is going to be different. And I think that's where the The uh, fun of the game is, is that it's a different puzzle each time, even though everything else is, is transparent.
0: Okay, cool. Um, one quick question. This came in from, from the Facebook community. Tell me about score tracks and like keeping track of the actual numbers in a game, the actual score, especially if a game has a you know, really high score, you know, 100 plus points. Uh, I've seen some games that go, go even higher than that. And players are really having to think through and maybe doing a lot of adding and subtracting. And, and anything you've found as far as like what is too much? Like what's too much of a cognitive load? for mm-hmm. players to deal with as far as the numbers, like is a thousand too much? Like, should, should you, uh, should a designer find a way to turn that into a hundred and, and kind of scale things back a little bit? And then also as, as far as like victory point tracks or, or life trackers and keeping track of the numbers, tell me just your, your opinion, your thoughts on those concepts.
1: Right, right. So I've, uh, I've had, I critiqued um, other designers designs where they had uh, very, very high scores and uh one of my one of my comments was well i could divide everything by you could divide all of your numbers by uh, a common factor so you could because everything was done in say like uh, threes right so everything was in multiples of threes i said well wouldn't it just make sense to uh just divide everything by three and the the point i was trying to get across is that you want to use the the smallest number that you can to achieve the level of granularity that you need in the game so if you uh, you because smaller numbers tend to be more easy to digest more easy to calculate in your head so uh, there, some people do have the argument that it's easier to count by fives than it is to count by ones um so if you're if you're a proponent of that that's that's totally fine Uh, but just make sure that you use the most digestible numbers that you can but still achieve the level of granularity that you want you don't want to uh break down everything to such small numbers that you start to have um, start to have like rounding issues in your balance right so if you know uh, if you all of a sudden take a game that where you know one card costs seven the other card costs you know, a twenty-two. Do you? You don't necessarily want to turn one of them into uh, one VP, the other one to three VP, because you're you may lose some of that granularity that you need.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. All right, let's switch gears a little bit uh, as we kind of close sure. things out. Tell me about some of the games you're working on now-ish, maybe some of the games that are coming out soon. You know, they're in the pipeline as far as the manufacturing goes. They're kind of fresh on your mind. Tell me how the math came into play with some of these games. Uh, I know, uh, I think it's Foundations of Rome that Mm -hmm. is coming out pretty soon. You got Metal Gear Solid. You got some really cool games. And so tell me about the math in those.
1: Okay, sure. So with Foundations of Rome, it's a sitting building game. And uh, the... The math was fairly straightforward because uh, it is very very symmetric so all the players have access to uh, the, at least the base game all the players have access to the same set of buildings so, so all the players have the same uh, potential uh, at, the, at the start so there's nothing that differentiates each of the, the players it's as the game goes so the so the uncertainty factor in this game is the the lots that you have available uh, so yeah let me take a step back and explain the game a little bit so in this game, each player is building uh, out a, uh, a communal building. So it's not each player is building their own city. All the players are building one city, the city of Rome. And so you are putting your buildings next to your opponent's buildings. Uh, and the interesting uh, uh, element of the game is that you get benefits from, your buildings get benefits from the buildings that are adjacent to it, but they don't need to be your buildings. So you do want to take advantage of the buildings that your opponents have built so uh, in order to place your buildings you need to be able to acquire the rights to be able to build on a particular spot and that's where the sort of the auction comes so you can get what we call lots and once you have a lot you can then build your buildings on them and so the the uncertainty is that 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 deck of lot cards is shuffled and is in a, we call it the river, where uh, the cost of the leftmost card is is the lowest and the rightmost card, the one that's closest to the deck, is the most expensive. And that's one way that we kind of uh, reduce the luck of the draw. As, let's say, like a new card comes out, it is the most expensive. And there's also the level of uncertainty that the the opponents, you're not quite sure what they can do. So it's it's also a game that is fairly transparent in that you can see what everyone else has. There's nothing that's really, really hidden in the game Uh, although we do have lots of stretch goals for hidden goals and and things like that but just the base game it's a so like Century Spicer it's very very transparent and the uh, the replayability from the game comes with the the order in which the lots come out presents a different puzzle along this is probably the game that has much more interaction with the other players Uh, is that you're building a communal of one city, so the actions that your opponents take is going to impact your decisions as well. Uh, But from a mathematical standpoint, it was actually quite uh, fairly simple in that there are three different ways of scoring, or three different types of buildings that scored in three different ways, but because it was all uh, fairly symmetrical uh, among the players, they all have access, they all have their own pool of buildings that they could choose from, uh, all I really needed to do was to to balance the three different types of buildings so that each one uh, is, uh, is interesting. So each building can provide the same amount of potential as the other buildings, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right, and so switching gears to a seemingly very different game, Metal Gear Solid, tell me about the math and how it all played out in that one.
1: Okay, so Bellagir Solve is a really, really interesting one from that perspective because it's based on dice, uh, and I think in, in a way a lot of people have dubbed me more of a Euro gamer, but I think I, I tend to gravitate towards like Ameritrash or more thematic style style games uh, because I, I feel like that uh, that the there's a bit of a, more of an immersion factor. Uh, And so, in this particular case, we do want to hide the math as much as as much as we can. We want to adhere as much to the theme as possible. So, in in that way, we so a lot of the math was really about the probability of the dice that you're rolling. Uh, We wanted to the probabilities to be fair and it to be under or give the players enough uh, options for mitigating. Uh, the dice, or to adjust those dice. So then, the interesting decision becomes: okay, when do I use my special abilities to alter these dice? Do I do them now, or do I do them at a, at a different point where it could be more consequential? Uh, and so, the the math under that—I uh, guess the other part of the math under that was to, um, and not so much math, but it was more just understanding the system of how the guards move. So. The math in that was really all about the probability. The system, on the other hand, was really about how the guards move, and what what is sort of like the procedure. So this is where more a little bit more uh, programming comes into play. Okay, well there is a there is an AI, and I'm putting you can't see the air quotes that I'm putting out there (laughs) for AI, Uh, but it is just a system by which the players can follow and give the illusion that the the patrol has some sense of intelligence in terms of what they do. So a lot of the emphasis was, was built into that system itself.
0: Very cool. Well, Emerson, man, this has been, this has been awesome. Uh, Super informative. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you want to leave listeners with, especially if they're, they're sitting there, maybe their brain hurts. A little bit from trying to comprehend all these math, you know, things that are going on. What would you tell somebody trying to figure out the math behind their game?
1: Oh, okay. Well, first uh, is like like I mentioned before, it's just uh, understanding combinations, uh, just probability uh, mechanics. It really helps for all the games because all most modern hobby games have uncertain elements of uncertainty, and you just need to know how how to model that uncertainty. To understand that level of uncertainty so that that you can deal with it in your design so i think that's really really important uh, the other thing is that um, uh, you know the listeners that are out there that are you know that would like to design or they're already designers and they're just looking for uh maybe tips on on this is uh, take everything i say with sort of a grain of salt and that i'm also exploring this myself too so like i said i feel like i'm getting into my sophomore year In this in this game design university, and I'm still learning the ins and outs of this Uh, I feel like I've gotten a a good handle like I've I've kind of found my stride in a way But I'm not sure what is the best way uh, to present this As sort of a a method a a system a, a process Yet so it's it's an area that I'm still exploring
0: Awesome. Well, Emerson, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with all the games I know you have in development and the really cool ones that are coming out soon. And good luck with everything else you got going on right now.
1: Yes, thank you. You too, Jake.